Uh, and I hope it resonates with you uh, and just gives you a sense that sometimes finding your path in life is not always that easy. But the important thing is to persevere and to keep asking God, not just uh, what do I want to do with my life, but God, what do you want of me? What are you asking of me for my life and for your church? So to understand my vocation, I think you have to understand my family and my, my parents. So. Uh, my father uh, was a physician in India. He, mar he married my mother in 1963. Uh, they had two boys in India. Uh, and India at that time uh, was getting very crowded. Uh, it was getting very polluted, uh, very overpopulated. And my father wanted a better life for his family. Also in India, medicine was scarce, so he couldn't pa practice as a physician the way he wanted to. But the American government I was offering green cards to people from India, Pakistan, and Philippines because there was a shortage of doctors in the United States because of the Vietnam War. So my father uh, wanted to come to America, so he took his U.S. medical board exams in India and he passed on the first try and immediately was granted his green card. So he decided to go to Toledo, Ohio because the Sisters of Mercy ran a hospital there and they promised they would give him a place to stay. But he couldn't really afford it, so he, he sold what he had, rode his motorcycle to the airport with all his possessions in the trunk, sold his motorcycle, and came to the United States with $5 to his name. Arrived in Toledo, uh, and the sisters did give him a place to stay, and they loaned him money for food for his first few months, and he worked in the hospital. And then he could bring my mom and brothers over uh, a few months later. They, of course, came to Toledo. They had never seen snow. They had never seen a lot of things. And uh, my oldest brother was, had started school already in India. Uh, and so uh, he went to the public school. We were a poor family. And he went to the public school, and uh, he was not allowed to use the drinking fountains and lavatories at the same time as the other kids because his skin was brown. And this is 1970 in the north. But it was the time of Cesar Chavez and the migrant worker movement. And so my father went to the parish priest and said, Father, this is what's happening at, the school, at that school. Can you talk to the principal there? And the priest said, Doctor, your son can come to our school. And my dad said, but I can't afford to pay. He says, it doesn't matter. He's a child of God. He can come to our school. To pay tuition, my dad gave free physicals to all the kids in the school so they could be certified for sports. And that's how things were done in those days. But it started us off on the path started me off, at least, on the path to where I am today. My mother from that learned, look, this country's great. You have a lot of freedom, but nobody in this country is ever going to give you anything. You boys are going to have to work hard, study hard, and pray hard. So they came over in 1970 with two boys, and in 71, 72, and 73, they had three more boys. I'm the middle of those three younger ones. And so we were all by ourselves, and my mother said, you know, we don't have any family in this country either, uh, except each other and the church. So you boys are going to have to work hard and pray hard and study hard. And we did. My mother had been a school teacher in India. So, you know, little kids, they go to the zoo. We went to the zoo and came back and wrote essays about all the animals we saw at the zoo. You know, we, my mother drilled us in, in all our academics, and we were all, we all uh, did really well in school. Uh, but my mother also said, you know, if, in this country, you know, you have to gain people's respect. In a way, you have to earn people's respect. And so she sent us off to school. She'd teach us our prayers. And as we'd go out the door, she'd say, pray that you be a good boy, a tall boy, and a doctor, because my dad was a doctor. And that was in my head most of my childhood. 
And I watched my dad at the hospital, saving lives, treating the sick, being compassionate in a great bedside manner. Sometimes though, we, in those days you could just walk over to the hospital, and we did, and we'd just look for my dad. And we either find him in the library studying with patients or in the hospital chapel praying for his patients. And I saw my father was a man of prayer. And he worked and he sacrificed so that we boys might have a better life in this country. My mother, on the other hand, eventually she would earn, she had a master's in sociology. She was the first woman in her family to, uh, to even go to college, let alone finish. Master's in sociology, master's in education, ed specialist degree, and a master's in social work and guidance counseling. She worked at a, a battered women's center and eventually became a counselor at the University of Toledo, helping students with disabilities and minority students uh, on, their, on their journey uh, to getting their degrees. So I had, I had wonderful parents, but my mother kept on saying, pray that you be a good boy, a tall boy, and a doctor. So we all did well in school, but at home, my parents made us pray every single day. We prayed as a family every day, not just before and after meals, but we prayed the rosary every day. Of course, we prayed the rosary right when our favorite TV programs were on. So we boys, we had to kneel in our living room, shut off the TV, kneel in our living room and pray the rosary. And we try to say our, our fathers and Hail Marys as fast as we could. So a typical Hail Mary was, and my dad couldn't understand us. He would say from his chair, repeat, and then we try, go try to go fast. Repeat. If he had to say repeat three times, then he'd get up from his chair, take off a slipper, and swat us, and then we have to say it slowly. <laughs> we might not have been the most reverent people, but my parents were trying to teach us the need to pray every day and the importance of prayer. And so we did. But I also saw that faith and prayer were very real for my parents. I saw my mother as an educator and a counselor. I saw my dad as a physician. But even one night I couldn't sleep, and my parents never ate dinner with us. They would always eat much later than we, and I'd been put to bed, but I couldn't sleep, so I got up, and it was Lent. Uh, and I remember uh, seeing my parents sitting down for dinner, getting ready to sit down for dinner, and in our family, we never ate meat during Lent at all. And my father went over to the refrigerator and got two hard-boiled eggs, and he put one on the scale and then the other one. And the larger one he gave to my mother for her supper and the smaller one he took for himself for his supper. And that was it. And it showed me how much my father really loved my mother, but it also showed me that fasting and prayer weren't just something they made us do. There was a reason it created space in their lives for God. And so I was really blessed uh, in my parents and I was blessed to be able to go to Catholic school. And I went to school with the kids from the area and during those days, especially during the Carter and Ford administration, unemployment was high, inflation was high, not unlike today. Uh, and guys, dads were out of work for sometimes two years. And they couldn't afford to pay uh, the tuition for their uh, sons to go to school. And some of my classmates were thin because there wasn't enough to eat. And the parish priest would look out and see the men of the parish you know, who couldn't afford it, who were out of work, put their shoulders down. But he was smart. He would say, oh, you too. If you run the parish fruit drive, your kids can stay in school. And so they did, and it gave them some confidence. And so the priest was sort of like a visionary. He saw what was needed, and he acted with compassion. And it made an impression on me. Um, and we didn't always like the priests. Uh, sometimes they were too liberal for us. Sometimes they were too conservative. Sometimes they were too strict. You know, but, uh, but they were our priests, and they brought us Jesus. 
Uh, and so we carried on. Well, when I got to eighth grade, uh, my classmates and I had to predict what we'd be in 50 years. And my classmates predicted I'd be the first American pope. I don't know what they, what they saw in me at that time, except I went to church, I said my prayers, I tried to be kind to everyone, I was an altar boy, all those things, but they saw something. And sometimes we don't always see it in ourselves, but our classmates see it and they give us a, a word of encouragement. So I went off to high school. I went to St. Francis de Sales High School. You guys from de Sales, we call you the other de Sales. Mr. Dvorak, your teacher, was my high school classmate. Uh, or I was his classmate either way, uh, but we, I went to St. Francis of Sales. I was taught by priests and brothers, and they didn't just teach us religion. They were our hockey coach, our track coach. They taught us chemistry, calculus, physics. They were brilliant men who could have done anything with their lives, but they chose to be priests and brothers and to teach us. You know, we were 30 kids in a classroom, all unruly, and they made men out of us. Part of it was they had and we had to wear a coat and tie every day to school. You know, so that also put some constraints on us. But they pushed us. You know, the priest pushed us. Oh, you know, you got an 80 on this calculus. What's wrong with you, Fernandez? You know, get, you know and they pushed us to be better because they knew we could do more. And I was really good at uh, high school Latin. I took four years of Latin, I was really good. I, was, I graduated second in my class. My best friend graduated first. We both became priests. Um, and. Part of it was having the priests around, it seemed natural to be one. But I was good at Latin, and I applied to Xavier University in Cincinnati to major in Latin and Greek. Uh, and I got a presidential scholarship, so full room, board, tuition, everything. But I said, well, that'd be useful if I was going to be a priest, but I'm not going to be a priest because I had it in my mind, I'll be a good boy, a tall boy, and a doctor. But at the same time, I had a religion class, and that year, uh, there was a guy, his name was Mr. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. But his name should have been Mr. Wright, W-R-I-T-E, because he made us take lots of notes. And so, but he was talking about vocations, and one day he talked about the priesthood, and we had to fill out a questionnaire. Have you ever thought about being a priest? And I checked, yes, because I had thought about it. Would you like to receive some literature about being a priest? And I checked, yeah, why not? What's, what's there to lose? Well, write down your address, so I did. Well, I came to my house, and of course, my dad saw it. And so my dad and I had a conversation about what the seminary was like. Unbeknownst to me, my father had been in the seminary in India for four years, and then he discerned his way out that he was called to marriage. But, um, but he and I had a nice talk, and so he was very supportive. And my mother kept on saying, be a good boy, be a tall boy, be a doctor. And I applied to a lot of different universities. I wound up going to the University of Toledo where my mother was working. And like my brothers, I was a pre-med biology major. I have four brothers. My oldest brother is a, a pulmonary critical phys uh, care physician. My youngest brother is a pulmonary critical care physician. Uh, my third oldest brother lives here in Columbus. He's a pediatrician, but also has a doctorate in philosophy from Georgetown University. And my second oldest brother, he's a lawyer, he's a magistrate, he's a judge up in Toledo. Um, and I'm a bishop. So uh, we say a doctor, a lawyer, and a priest walk into a bar, but we're really just telling a family story. <laughs> you know, so, but we, we were pushed by our parents but I had the sense, maybe God is calling me to be a priest. But instead of listening to his voice, I did whatever my parents told me to do and what everybody else was telling me to do. Look, you have a brilliant mind. You can go and be a doctor. You can make lots of money and give it back to our, our high school. Uh, that was the thought. 
You can do anything you want with the gifts God's given you. But I, was asking, I wasn't asking God, God, what are you asking of me? Who do you want me to be? Because we can all give in to peer pressure and be who someone else tells us to be. St. Francis de Sales, he writes, be who you are and be that well in honor of the master craftsman whose handiwork you are. But sure enough, uh, I uh, wound up going to the University of Toledo, pre-med biology major. My mother worked at the university, so I got all my tuition paid for. I got my scholarship money in cash, uh, and it was great. And I did really well in college. My third year of college, though, I studied in England. And I decided, uh, you know what, maybe uh, this, I'm not under my parents' roof. Maybe this is when I start skipping mass. Maybe I do my own thing over here. Nobody's watching over me. But you know, the thing in England, the only thing that seemed familiar to me was mass, not the language at all. And so I started to go to mass, and there happened to be an Irish priest there, Father Ian Kelly. He was a really good preacher. He had a great singing voice. There was something about him that was different. And so I started not only not to skip mass, but I started to go to mass every day. And there I got to know the other university students who were going to mass every day, and we all had this kind of friendship and this common faith. And I said, Finally, I said, you know what, I'm going to go talk to Father Kelly. And so I made an appointment to see him. I was sitting outside his office in a chair with my hands like this. He opened his door and says, Earl, come into my office. You're sitting there looking like a bishop. And I, <laughs> I laughed and I said, you know, funny that you say that, Father, because uh, I, I wanted to talk to you about becoming a priest. And I began to tell him my story. And he said, well, look, I was getting ready to travel throughout Europe at Christmas time on one of those Eurorail passes, taking the trains here and there. And he said, well, here, I'll give you some quotes. You think about these things. And so I did. And then I uh, was uh, traveling with my best friend from high school who happened to be studying in Edinburgh in Scotland. So we were traveling. And we traveled together for Rome, to Rome uh, for Christmas. And uh, I walked into St. Peter's Basilica for the first time. And the first thing I saw was the stained glass window of the Holy Spirit. And then my, my heart began to beat very quickly. And I looked over to my right, and there was Michelangelo's Pietà. And then, I began to tour through the basilica, and you see the saints, where the saints are buried, where the popes are buried. Finally, I came to the tomb of St. Peter, and I knew at that moment God was calling me to be a priest, and I fell to my knees, and I thought, certainly, this is who I am supposed to be. But what did I do? Well, I came back to the United States, took my MCAT exams, got back together with my old girlfriend, anything to avoid the call. Why? Because Peter was crucified upside down on the Janiculum Hill, and he was buried there. And that's frightening, to, to, to die to oneself and to die for the Lord. And so I was smart. I got into medical school at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, moved to Cincinnati to go to medical school. And it was something I could do. But I realized deep down inside I wasn't happy because I wasn't being who God was calling me to be. And so, uh, but I started, I didn't live too far from the church. And so I, uh, I uh, was going to mass every day. And then one day, uh, the priest said kind of a, fine, a fast mass, so I hadn't left an hour for communion. And so I went to the priest afterwards and said, you know, Father, you said kind of a fast mass. I hadn't left an hour for communion. Do you think you could uh, go to the tabernacle and get a host? And begrudgingly, he went to the tabernacle. And he says, you know, God doesn't wear a wristwatch. I said, well, yeah, I know, Father, but, but, uh, but uh, this is what my parents taught me, so it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Uh, and then he said, but I always, we grew up receiving communion on the tongue. He said, well, you need to get over that too. And I said, uh, get over what? And he said, well, I'm um, receiving communion on the tongue. And I said, well, you know, that's what my parents taught me and that's what my grandparents before them did. And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. But one thing led to another and I got into a big fight with the priest <laughs> over a lot of different things. And it's the only time in my life 
that my faith was shaken. But then I remembered Father Kelly saying something. He said to me, Earl, if an Irishman doesn't like the bartender, does he give up drinking? I said, no. No, he just goes to the next pub up the road. And not far from where I lived was an old Italian church, Sacred Heart. And so I went down there once for a 7.30 morning mass, and there was two old Italian priests. One was 85 and one was 75. And they rang the bell, entrance antiphon page, such and such. But they came out and they said mass. They didn't preach, they just said mass. And they looked happy. And I thought, I could be that old and be a priest and be happy. And that was the one thing that was missing in my life was true happiness. So I said, I'm gonna to talk to that younger priest who was 75. And I went and I talked to him on a regular basis. Uh, and, I, and at the end of my second year of medical school, I thought, I, I need to do something now. So I said, I'm gonna to go to church and pray. And I went to Old St. Mary's. I told some people this story yesterday uh, at the Newman Center at Ohio State. I went to Old St. Mary's Church in Cincinnati and they had exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. So I went to pray. My mother used to say, well, whenever you go into a new church for the first time, you get to make three wishes to the saint of that church. And I said, well, I think we call them petitions, mom. Whatever, you get your three wishes. <laughs> well, my older brother, Trevor, he had finished law school, but he hadn't yet found a job. So I went into this church and I prayed that he would find a job. And a month later, he found a job. My oldest brother, uh, Carl and his wife Shayla, they'd been married for three years. They'd wanted to have children. My mother kept on telling me to pray that they would have children, but they couldn't have any children. And the doctors had told them they couldn't have any children. But I went and I prayed. I said, Lord, give them a child. And I said, if you give them a child, then the third thing I ask is that you give me the courage to go to this house in Rome that I had heard about, maybe to be a priest. Well, Easter of that year, my brother and his wife reported that they were expecting a child. And so I packed my bags and I went to Rome to figure out if I should be a doctor or be a priest. But along that way, I had already been thinking about it, and I, and I had my courage up then when I found out they were expecting. And I said, okay, well, I'm gonna call the vocation director uh, in Toledo. Uh, Father Hahn, Father Bill Hahn is our vocation director. Remember that name, remember that face. Please call him, please call him, please call him. And he will call you back. But I called the vocation director in the Diocese of Toledo seven times. I never got a call back. I, call, I, I talked to the dean of the medical school who was a Catholic. And he, um, he said, well, look, I know a Jesuit priest who's a physician also. Why don't you talk to him? So I called this priest in Chicago and said, look, thinking about being a doctor, thinking about being a priest, thinking about a Jesuit, do you have any advice for me? He said, well, look, I entered the Society of Jesus when I was 18 years old. You, you finished your college. Uh, you finished a couple of years of medical school. My, my suggestion is um, finish your medical school, uh, date for a while, and if it doesn't work out, give us a call back in 10 years. I was like, what was that? <laughs> so I called the vocation director in Cincinnati where I was living and, uh, and said, I'm thinking about being a priest, uh, could I meet with you? And he said, sure, when can you meet? And that began my story of going to this house in Rome uh, to figure out if I wanted to be a doctor or a priest or both. And so I lived in Rome for a year then, from 1996 to 1997. And at the end of that year, I decided to enter into the seminary. Part of it is you don't know because what you really wanna be unless you can be still. And that you're away allowed me to just be still and to hear God's voice. Everything was the same each day. We get up in silence in the morning and go pray in the chapel. And then when we'd finished an hour of prayer, we could uh, come down and have breakfast. And breakfast was the same. It was a hard roll with some butter and coffee. 
and that was it. Then lunch was our big meal, so we'd have classes in the morning. Then lunch was our big meal. Uh, we'd have the first plate would always be pasta, the second plate meat, and then uh, the dessert was usually fruit. And then we'd have what they call recreazione, which was really not recreation, but it was our chores. And I'd been the only guy who had lived away from home, so my household chore was to iron everybody else's shirts and trousers every single day. And that's what I did, so I can iron like nobody's business. I just imagine my worst enemy and then I push harder on the iron. But um, the idea, and then we'd have, later on in the, in the early evening, we'd have mass, and then with supper we'd have soup, salad, no meat, and then we'd have our prayers, night prayers, and our points for meditation for the next morning, and then lights out and grand silence starting at 10 in the evening. But the idea was that this, you had the same thing every single day, like a control group in a scientific experiment. So that when you hear the movements or experience the movements of the spirit, you can be sensitive to them. You notice, ah, something's different here today. And that allowed me to carefully ask God and to have the stillness and the silence to hear God's voice and to experience his profound love for me and to really think about not just what I wanted to do, but God, what do you want me to do? And sometimes God knocks you over the head, hits you over the head, and at other times he speaks in a whisper. But it's only then in saying, okay, I'll do this, that I really found peace in my life. And so I spent five years in the seminary and was ordained as a priest in 2002 I say, I always say I was so bad when I first got ordained, they sent me 100 miles north of Cincinnati. And I was in Sydney, Ohio, working in a parish and then teaching high school students, seniors in high school. Uh, a couple of my students actually eventually became priests. And a lot of them moved to the Columbus area and are married and living here and they have kids and I, I baptized some of their kids even. Uh, so you get a real sense of fatherhood. But when I was your age, you know, the, or when I was teaching kids your age, the thing I was impressed about is their great potential, their zest for life. They're, they're, they're questioning spirit. And then, you know, I, I'm not as dumb as I look so I could answer some of their questions. And the fact that I had a background in science made them also scratch their heads a little bit. How can this person be a person of faith and be a person of reason and science? How can he, and you can because faith and reason are compatible. But then I also found that I discovered my own sense of fatherhood. Because I don't believe you can be a good priest unless you have a natural desire to be a good husband and a good father. Because being a husband, being a father requires sacrifice. And it requires wanting to generate life. And in fact, as a priest, we generate life in the font of baptism. We can be spiritual fathers to, uh, to, to young people and to old people as well. And to really be present the way my father was pre you know, present in my life. And to be a man of prayer and to be able to lead a community. And that's really what we need today amidst all the challenges, men willing to sacrifice their lives for others willing to lead. And I said, I can be that. But after two years there, um, my archbishop called me and said, look, we want to send you to study in Rome. I always say I was so bad after two years, they sent me across the Atlantic. And I was there in Rome from 2004 to 2008. But during that time, Pope John Paul II, now canon I say it, was Pope. And he was suffering greatly from Parkinson's, and eventually he died while we were there. And he'd been a spiritual father to a whole generation. And so he was there, and, uh, and our Pope, and then he died. And it was a great period of mourning. Uh, but then I mentioned I was living in a house in Rome for a year. Well, the, the person in charge of our house who oversaw it was Cardinal Ratzinger. And he was elected then as Pope Benedict XVI, and I was there in St. Peter's Square when he was elected. And it was a moment of great joy 
because in the priesthood there are great sorrows and there are great joys. And not only for the priest himself, but also for the people. Sometimes you have the joy of a newborn child in a baptism or a wedding, and sometimes you have the great sorrow of having to have someone's funeral. But little by little you learn about life and experiencing life and what can give life to others. And so I was in Rome studying, and I missed the people. Because once you're with the people as a priest, you start to love the people. Uh, whether they love you or not, you learn to love your people. And I had to study again. You know, I, I had already been K through 12 Catholic school, four years in university, two years in medical school, another year in Rome. Uh, then I was taught for two years and four more years to learn to earn a licentiate and doctoral degree. And at the end of it, I was sent back across. I say I was so bad at the end of that. They sent me back across the Atlantic, but they wouldn't let me um, be in a parish. I was the academic dean then of a seminary where we taught the future priests and formed them to be men of God, formed them to be priests after the heart of Jesus, merciful and kind and compassionate. And I did that for eight years. The last two years, um, they asked me also to be administrator or pastor of a parish. It was the Italian parish, Sacred Heart. They needed a priest who knew English, Italian, and Latin. But I was asked to go there only because the two priests retired at age 93 and 84. Father Mario, who was the older of the two, he came to the United States in 1945, knowing no English, and he never went back to Italy. That's how much he loved the Lord and the gospel and his people. And then, so I administrated that parish, and then people started to come back to Mass, the Italians started to come, the Latin Mass people, they were all happy, the English Mass people were happy. And then all of a sudden I got a call out of the blue saying, we want you to come to Washington to work at the Vatican Embassy. And so the things I was doing, the things I was loving, had to die. And I had to go sit in an office, underground office with bars on the windows, and do work. Like I would write a letter to somebody like Father Hahn. Dear Father Hahn, thank you for the beautiful picture of the seminarians from the Diocese of Columbus as a gift for His Holiness, Pope Francis. This letter is to acknowledge your gift and to express His Holiness's gratitude in anticipation of receiving it. According to your regards and prayerful best wishes, I am sincerely yours in Christ, Archbishop Christoph Pierre Apostolic Nuncio. So I worked for the Vatican Ambassador, and I was a ghostwriter and would write these form letters and things like that all the time. And part of what we did at the Vatican Embassy was help find bishops for dioceses. Uh, and we'd, we'd help the American bishops um, with problems in their diocese, with pastoral planning, uh, and uh, prisoners would write wanting some token of affection from Pope Francis, and we'd send them a card or a rosary blessed by the Pope, these sorts of things we did. Um, and during that time, I said Mass for Mother Teresa's sisters who had accompanied me throughout uh, my life, but that was it. Um, and then there was a, a scandal in a big parish back in my diocese of Cincinnati. So after four years of working there at the Vatican Embassy, I was asked to be a pastor, finally, of a big parish. 3,000 families, 1,200 children in the elementary school, and I was the only priest. And I had 25 funerals in my first two months. And then the global pandemic. But people then saw the importance of a priest. I could die by something unknown. Father, could you come? Could you bring me communion? Our churches were shut, and we had to use social media to evangelize. And there was a big hospital right next door. And I, I was the only priest under age 60 on the whole west side of Cincinnati, and so I was the guy having to put on the mask and the hazmat suit and go in and anoint the dying, and to have their funerals, and to give people courage and hope. 
But that's the greatness of the call of the priesthood. Meanwhile, I also still had my other job working for the Vatican ambassador remotely while trying to pastor this parish and build a new preschool and you know, do planning for the future because we simply don't have enough priests these days. It's a great life. My first pastor used to say, it's a great life if you don't weaken. But we can't afford to be weak anymore. We have too many weak men, too many la who lack courage. What we need are men who would be willing to be husbands and fathers to sacrifice themselves for something greater than themselves. In the military, if you want to be successful sometimes, they say you need boots on the ground. And that's what we need in the Diocese of Columbus. We need boots on the ground. We need lots of boots on the ground. We got a million people coming to the Diocese of Columbus because of the new Intel plant in the next 10 years. Who's going to be there for them? Who's going to bring them Jesus each and every day? Father Rummelsbach is a great pastor, right? But he tells me he's 66 years old. I know he's lying to me because he looks much younger. <laughs> you know, Father Black's a great pastor, but he must be 60 years old. Father Hahn is the vicar for clergy, but the vocation director, and he says mass at the Newman Center. You know, Father Hahn had a lot of hair when I began just two months ago. I just keep giving him more jobs. But that's what it's coming to. You know, in the news, there have been articles about the possible uh, merger of the Diocese of Steubenville with the Diocese of Columbus. Steubenville has 41 priests. Half of them are over age 65. They only have eight guys who are between 40 and 60 years old. This year in the Diocese of Columbus, zero ordinations to the priesthood. Next year, one. And he's an older fellow from Uganda. Certainly, we can do better in the, in the state's capital. Certainly, we can do better and need to do better. You go to your schools, how's all that possible? Well, it's the people in the pews who are coming to Mass who pay for all that. Your hardworking parents paying for you to come and have a Catholic education. People who have faith because they believe that what faith offers you is eternal life. But we need people to bring the sacraments. And that's where Father Han and I and all the people of God are counting on you to respond generously to the Lord's call to be a priest or to be a religious. You might not know what you want to be today, but ask God, who are you calling me to be? Don't ask everybody else, who should I be, what should I do? Ask him. He's the only one with the right answer. He's the one with the right answer. Any other answer other than his answer is the wrong answer, right? We always want to say yes to God. Saying no to God never brings something good into our life. And so, Lord, who are you calling me to be? How are you asking me to serve? My father thought he was going to be a priest. He didn't become a priest. He became a doctor. But he gave birth to five boys, one of whom happens to be the bishop standing before you. You don't have to be rich to be a priest. I grew up poor. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the world to be a priest. The patron saint of the parish priest is St. John Vianney, who wasn't very good at school. What you need is to ask God to increase your faith. That was the gospel we heard. He said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell this mulberry tree, go into the sea and it would obey you. You think you can't do very much, but with God's power at work in you, you can do a lot of things. Pope Benedict XVI is now 95, almost 96 years old, but he said this, God did not make you for mediocrity. He made you 
for greatness. The priesthood is the greatness of God's love for his people. Every day I have the privilege of offering the Holy Eucharist to the people of God. When I was in second grade, I was getting ready for my first Holy Communion. And I always ask God a question. God, do you love me as much as the white kids? God, do you love me as much as the rich kids? God, do you love me as much as the kids who are faster than I am, who are better at sports than I am? And God answered my question when I received my first Holy Communion. Yes, I love you just as much as everybody else. And that love has never diminished. No matter what I've done, his love for me is unfailing. And then I thought about what the priests had done for our family, how the nuns had given my father a place to stay and given him food to eat, how they taught us and were patient with us. And I thought, at the time of my decision to enter in the seminary, um, five boys in our family, we've been blessed by the Lord, how can I give back? And it says in the Psalms, what thanks shall I render unto the Lord for all the good things he has rendered unto me? I shall take the chalice of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. This is the greatness of the life of being a priest. And I would invite you all to discern whether God is calling you to this greatness. Thank you very much.